Well, if you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll look at the first seven verses together for today's sermon. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I spent the week cheering my kids on and yelling at them a little bit. Uh, I have the privilege of coaching my, my sons and got to see my daughters play in a big tournament this week. So if my voice sounds worse than usual, uh, then that's part of the reason why. Um, but it is a privilege to be here, and I'm going to try to use the moments we have to explain why the passage I referenced, and I hope many of you have already turned to, is what all of us should want our lives to look like. It's specifically addressed to pastors or to churches to know what a pastor is and what type of people to appoint to such a sacred task. But the character qualities that we're going to look at for overseers or pastors in verses 1 to 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 are not unique or special to a certain subset of Christians. They're the types of things that all Christians should aspire to be true of our lives, but must be present in the lives of pastors. Before we read the passage, let me just tell you how it fits in our little section of the book of 1 Timothy that we've been dealing with. Two weeks ago, we were in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we talked about men and women who love Jesus more than anything else in the universe and what their lives would look like. Those who treasure Jesus as men, as women, as brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 2 had something to say to us about what our lives would look like. Today, it's what pastors who treasure Jesus, what would their lives look like? And Lord willing, next week in the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it'll be deacons. What would those deacons who treasure Jesus, what would their lives look like? Well, if you're able... Uh, to follow along, please join me in worshiping as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." This is God's word. Join me again at the throne of grace as we pray for his help to understand and apply this passage. Oh God, we thank you for caring 
more deeply than anyone else about your people and our good. You know what we need and we thank you that you have made clear what the lives of those who lead your sheep ought to be, must be. So even before we try to dive into the particulars of this long list of qualifications of overseers, we ask that you would bless this church with pastors who treasure Jesus. We pray that the flock of Jesus, known as Grace Church in Memphis, would benefit from the ministry of God-called, biblically qualified pastors. I pray specifically that you would protect this flock from self-serving pastors, from egotistical, prideful pastors. Instead, would you bless us with men who fear the Lord and who fear sin? Would you bless us with men who will lead us, who walk in holiness and lead with gospel love? I ask that you would cause the pastors of this church to be riveted to Jesus. And in turn, would you, through them, draw this entire congregation closer to Christ through their ministry. And I pray for every person here who cannot identify with verse six to be saved. As I preach about what a pastor is, would you cause people who are not even yet Christians to come to Jesus and of those who are men, some of them to one day be pastors. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So verse one and two is about the office of pastor. What is a pastor? What is an overseer? It's about an inward sense of something God's doing in those people. And then verses two to seven is the outward evidence that God has called them. So verse one and two, a little bit of the inward desire and verse two to seven, the outward objective qualities that must be present in his life. So verses one and two, a pastor and his calling from God. There's three things in verses one and two that I wanna especially draw attention to about a pastor and his inward calling from God. Uh, the first thing is what all Christians must trust. The second is what is an overseer? What is that office? And, and third, what must a man who fills that office desire? Okay, so first, what is this truth, this trustworthy statement that all Christians must embrace? If you'll see in verse one, that opening phrase, it is a trustworthy statement. That's the way my Bible renders it in the New American Standard. To put that phrase another way, Paul is saying that this is a topic, this is a matter about which all Christians should agree. This is trustworthy. This is something all believers should hold in common. And the thing that we should all trust is something about polity, P 
P-O-L-I-T-Y, and pastors. So before I just go into those two things that all Christian must trust, I want to say something specifically to those who are kind of flirting with church, dating churches, rather than grafting your life into one. If that applies to you, we are very glad you're here. This may not be the church the Lord wants you to join, but if you're a Christian, I want to say unapologetically and clearly, he definitely wants you to join one. If you don't believe that you need a local church that's overseen, that's God's word in this passage, by elders, bishops, pastors, then your argument's not with me or with us, it's with God, it's with this passage. I'm saying it that way because Paul says this is the baseline truth that all Christians should trust. This is trustworthy, this is solid, this is right. That's why one of my first questions to anyone who says they're a Christian is, to what church do you belong? To what congregation are you accountable? You may have seen in our Lord's Supper instructions that were projected on the wall. The third one was accountable to a gospel preaching church. In just a few moments, I'm going to explain the gospel. And if the church that you are accountable to, that means they hold you accountable and you hold them accountable, preaches the same gospel you're going to hear me preach, then we joyfully invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you say you believe the gospel that I'm about to preach, and there's no group of Christians under heaven to whom you are accountable, called a church, then you've got some big time questions with this passage. It's a trustworthy statement. All Christians should land on this solid rock. This is good and right in the sight of God that the office and the person. Uh, First, let me just talk about the office. That's there in verse one. If any man aspires to the office of the overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. I said the word polity earlier. I didn't mean policy. I meant polity with a T. That refers to the way that a church is organized, how she is structured. Are we at liberty to just make that up as we so desire or has God said anything about that? At Grace Church, we believe the Bible is clear in its teaching about church order, church structure. And condensed down all the biblical teaching on that, as tight as we can get it, there's a fourfold structure presented in the New Testament for local churches. So her polity would be basically this. Christ is the head of the church. All the members under Christ are responsible to seek his face and to implement his will. That's called the priesthood of the believer. Every single Christian has direct access to God. So we seek his face and we obey his will together. We implement his will. Pastors are to serve the Lord's church by leading, especially through teaching and equipping. And then fourth, deacons are to focus on the ministries of the church and to lead by serving. So pastors serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. So Christ is the head, the congregation as a whole under Christ is to seek his face and obey his will. Pastors are to serve by leading and deacons are to lead by serving. 
Verse 1 is talking about the office of the pastor. It, it uses the word overseer, sometimes rendered bishop. There's another word in the New Testament that describes that same office. We translate it elder. There's another word that describes the same office. We translate it pastor. Those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office. That's what verse 1 is talking about. These words are used interchangeably in places like Timothy and Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul left Titus on the island of Crete so that he would set in order what remained and to quote verse 5, to appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. Two verses later, he says, for the overseer, talking about the same people as elders, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, so forth. So there, elder and overseers used interchangeably within the span of three verses. And then in Acts chapter 20, verses 17, and Acts 20, verse 28, Paul refers to the elders, verse 17, of the church at Ephesus. And in verse 28, he refers to them as overseers. The same people performing the same function, the same office in the church at Ephesus. Elder and overseer are used interchangeably here in chapter 3, verse 1. And then if you kept reading over to chapter 5, verse 17, you would see in 3.1, overseer, you would see in 5.17, elders. Same people, same office, different word. Each has a specific, um, something specific that it illumines about what a pastor is or what an overseer is or the work that they do. Ephesians 4.11 is the only verse in the whole Bible that talks about pastors as an office in the church and they are gifts given by the risen Jesus who sits on heaven's throne to every congregation that belongs to Jesus. It literally says when he ascended on high, he gave to churches, dot, 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 pastors. The word for pastor means to shepherd or to feed. So as we read the qualification of elders or overseers in 1 Timothy and Titus, we see that one of the main jobs of the elder, one of the works of the elder, which verse 1 talks about, a work that he aspires to do, one of those main jobs is to teach or to preach. Or to take all the other passages, those bishops or overseers are to be feeding the flock. How do they feed them? With the good nutrient of God's word. So, this should be trusted all churches need pastors, okay? And then the third thing about them is we're told that those who are not yet pastors are often indicated by their desire to be one. That's verse one. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Aspire, desire. Aspire to the office, desire to do the work. Well, it's kind of interesting because Paul's writing to Timothy, that's the name of the book, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is writing to that pastor saying, if anybody else wants to be one of those, that's a good work that he desires to do. So we can see that the church at Ephesus is encouraged to be looking for more pastors among them. 
not to replace Timothy, but to join him in that good work. In fact, every single church in the New Testament had a plurality of pastors. Some who earned their livelihood from the work of gospel ministry and some who worked in other stations of life and served the church voluntarily. Just to underscore that every church did in fact have a plurality of elders, the New Testament, Acts 14, 23, all the churches founded by Paul had a plurality of elders. Acts 15, 2, the church in Jerusalem, a plurality. Acts 20, 27, the church at Ephesus. Titus 1, 5, the churches on the island of Crete. James chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 14, all the churches of the dispersion, all throughout the Roman Empire, yes, had a plurality. And those that were in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to 1 Peter 1, 1, and 1 Peter 5, 1, a plurality of biblically gifted, called, and qualified elders in every church. So one thing I want to say to any pastor is that any pastor without a pastor is an unbiblical pastor. Pastors are not first pastors. Pastors are first sheep who need pastors, which is why we need a plurality so that our souls get shepherded just like everybody else's. And pastors are to give themselves, according to verse one, to work. It is a fine work that he desires to do. That work is primarily prayer and the ministry of the word of God, Acts 6, verse 4. So let's talk about this aspiration just a bit, and then we'll just zoom through these qualifications, not to make light of any of them, but they're so self-evident that they preach themselves. And I want to say before we get to that list again, and I hope I say it repeatedly throughout the list, every Christian should desire for these qualities to be his or hers and increasing. Well, let's talk about this aspiration. You'll see that word in verse one, if any man is aspires to the office of overseer to find work he desires to do. He doesn't want the office because of any sense of prestige that it might bring. See, he's not power hungry. In fact, it's because he's committed to the gospel and he's jealous for the glory of Christ to be seen and embraced more and more in his own life, but also for God's people. He would be a man that would be astonished. He would be flabbergasted to conceive of himself as worthy. He doesn't desire because he feels like he in and of himself is adequate. He's humbled even as he aspires and desires to contemplate possibly being entrusted with this sacred mantle. And therein is the tension between his palpable sense of unworthiness and this fire in his bones desire. He sees the unfathomable, unsearchable, unutterable beauty of Christ. And because of Jesus, he finds himself constrained and compelled and in a word, aspiring to help more people see the beauty of Christ. 
The aspiration to shepherd God's flock rises from an unflinching commitment to the gospel of Christ and an insatiable appetite for the glory of Christ to be seen and enjoyed in all of his fullness by more of Christ's people. That's what he wants. That's his aspiration. His desire is for the work of that. It's an inward sense. But this is so important. I think increasingly important in our day. That alone is not enough. There's got to be more. To put it another way, there's no such thing as a self-appointed pastor. Who's your pastor? I am. Who said so? I did. It doesn't work that way. There's no such thing as a self-appointed pastor. Just because you desire to do the work is not in itself adequate for one to be appointed to that sacred task. In fact, not even Jesus appointed himself to be a high priest. Go read Hebrews chapter five. It was the father who through Psalm 110 designated to his eternal son that he is the eternal priest for God's people. There's gotta be more than, I feel like God has called me to be a pastor for a man to be a pastor, but not less than that. He must desire that work and aspire to that work. That leads us to our second main consideration, the first is that there's an inward sense of call from God to this office and to this work. All churches in the New Testament had a plurality of these people, these overseers who keep watch over our souls, according to Hebrews 13. The second thing is the outward evidence that God has called a man to such a work. And that's the characteristics that God is working into his life. It's important to observe that the work, verse one, of an overseer is to be done by men who are of a certain character, verses two to seven. Now notice that almost everything said in verses two to seven are about the man's character. It's about qualities of the person, not job description. Reminds me of the Scottish pastor died at age 29, Robert Murray McShane, who was said to be, you know, just such a godly, holy, Christ-like man. And when he was asked, many of you have heard, what is the greatest need of your people, meaning the local church he pastored in Dundee, Scotland. And McShane's response was, the greatest need of my people is the holiness of their pastor. Why would McShane respond like that? Why would he think that's the biggest thing his flock needed? Because McShane went on to explain, and I'll paraphrase, otherwise people will be tempted to excuse their sin and play religious games and use all the same spiritual language instead of devoting themselves entirely to the Lord if they hear me say one thing and live another way. Oh, the pastor preaches about this big matter of sanctification and that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. 
He talks about personal holiness and he talks about putting sin to death. He talks about crucifying the flesh. He says that likeness to Christ is essential for every Christian, but he doesn't live like that. So we too can compromise on all the character issues and enjoy the blessings of God here and hereafter. You see the connection, right? McShane was on to something. So long as people think that the pastor just gets paid to say what he says, then nobody takes it seriously. Everybody in the local church will have greater reason, unjustifiable reason, but greater excuse, I should say, to not pursue personal holiness. And worse, we may just all live our lives under the delusion that we're saved. When in reality, we have what Paul called another, another place, a form of godliness, although we've denied its power. So these character qualities have to be present. They are musts. Verse two and verse seven, must, must. It's implied in verse four. So you could say three times, must, must, must. Because God wants his sheep to be led by examples for the flock, which takes me back to something I said at the very beginning. When somebody says they're a Christian, one of my first questions is, to what church are you accountable? Because Christianity is not only taught. It is definitely taught. God wrote a book, but it's also caught. You know what it's like when you get around holy people. If you're in Christ, that does something to you. It makes you want to pursue Christ. It makes you want to latch more tightly onto Jesus. You also know what it's like, the age-old illustration of you trying to help somebody up while you're standing in a chair. It's easier for you to pull them down when you surround yourself with people who compromise on sin all the time and make excuses galore for why all that holiness stuff isn't so essential and important. It's easier to start to compromise. Christianity is caught, not only taught. Verse two, verse four, verse seven, verse two must be above reproach. Verse four implied must be one who manages household well. Verse seven must have a good reputation with those outside the church. I think the way verses two to seven work is there's a summary catch-all big general qualification at the very beginning and then specifically explaining what that big general one means. Above reproach. That's the big general one in verse two. Uh, yeah. And then beneath that, there are summary qualifica uh, specific qualifications. The man must be above reproach. But as I looked at this passage, I thought, okay, Lord, am I just going to go down the list and try to explain every word? And the people tuned me out on number three, because you can count, and yes, there are 16 of them, if you count aspiration as one of them. And I thought, how can I do this, Lord? They've heard this passage before, many of them. And so I thought, ah, I'm starting to see how these things are grouped together or could be grouped together, not sequentially in the way they're listed, but in terms of relationship. And I began to see that there are varieties of relationships that this above reproach qualification applies to. It's both personal and interpersonal. 
And in those groupings, this above reproach relationship is with God, with himself, with his household, with the world, and with the church. So let me just show you those five relationships of this man being above reproach. First, the pastor's relationship with Christ. I start there, but it's in verse six. Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now this is vitally important. First, there's two things here. First, he must be converted, not a new convert. This clearly supposes that something has happened to him and it happened a while ago. He's been born again. This man is saved. He believes the gospel. He has given his life by faith to the risen Jesus Christ. This man would say of himself in whatever words he wanted to use, Jesus ran away to heaven with my heart. I belong to him. Jesus Christ is Lord. I owe all allegiance to him. Hail Christ. He's the king. He's my greatest treasure. Which led Dan Holst, a friend of mine in Minneapolis, who taught a a seminar on biblical eldership to his local church. He said, the ongoing aim of this man is to exalt Christ. He cherishes Christ. He loves Christ. He wants to honor Christ. And he desires Christ above all else. Thereby, he ensures that God's great glory and the most exquisite pleasure of his people are inextricably intertwined. Thus, the under-shepherds of the church should be those people whose satisfaction in God is so contagious that they naturally draw others into that enjoyment of God through teaching and preaching and ministry and care. He must not be a new convert, but he must definitely be a convert. And second, when it says not new, this obviously means some time of seasoning. Now, God didn't put a calendar into this verse. We don't know exactly how long is long enough. But we won't mind a little patience when we remember that our Lord himself prepared 30 years for a three-year ministry. Before he's put into the work, there should be some season of him being seasoned. And then we're told why. Conceit. There's a big danger of installing a man and appointing a man to the office of pastor in a local church if he's a new convert. And Paul said it's conceitedness. This word refers to the appalling attribute of arrogance. One lexicon said, to be so arrogant as to be practically demented, to be insanely arrogant, to be extremely proud, to be very arrogant. That's the word Paul uses here. The danger that a church being served by a conceited pastor is too directional. He will use them instead of loving them because you cannot use people and love them at the same time. Speaking personally, if I need you to give me affirmation for me to feel like God loves me, then I'm using you. Or if I need your applause or approval, I appreciate 
the encouragement. It may put wind in my sails toward Christ, but if I need you to give me something only Christ can provide, then I'm using you. A conceited pastor is a man who looks around the church and inwardly thinks to himself, I deserve this. I mean, of course God called me. Look around. Who else would he have used? That's the most unfit man to serve as an overseer of Christ's flock. He never gets to know or enjoy that the pastorate is not glamorous. If he's clout chasing, he never actually gets the privilege to pastor. As many in the world know, outside the church, being a pastor is not that much of a status symbol. But sometimes in the church, in the little small bubbles and incubators that we tend to live our lives in, it could appear like it's something of a pedestal. But Paul described it as filling up that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings. That's not a theological statement about the insufficiency of the cross. He's just saying being a pastor is basically an invitation to more sorrow. Pastors are invited into the sacred privilege of exuberant joys with God's people. And many times they're left in a proverbial, if not literal, fetal position, wondering how in the world they can be of any help to somebody suffering in such horrific situations or carrying burdens of sin. The only way for a pastor to become conceited is to buy into the delusion that nobody in the church is above him. But pastors are actually not ever called to lead from above, but from below, according to Corinthians, we're the under rowers in the boat that nobody sees, serving as our primary form of leading. If a pastor supposes he's above the flock, he doesn't realize he's first himself a sheep. Before he's a pastor, he's part of the flock. The church doesn't need him. Quite the contrary, he needs them for his own progress in the faith. More could be said, but I'll segue to the list that will rapid fire by saying Jesus told two people that their faith amazed him. One of those men was a centurion, a Roman soldier. Century means a hundred. Centurion is a leader of a hundred. And the centurion came to Jesus and said, my servant is paralyzed at home. Will you come heal him? And Jesus said, sure. And the centurion said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And Jesus doesn't say why, but the guy answers the why question. And the centurion says, because I'm in charge. I tell this guy, do it. He does it. I tell this guy, go, he goes. I tell this guy, come, he comes. Do this, they do it. But he didn't say it that way. He was talking to Jesus and he used a word that's in the original, in the Greek of the verse. He said, I also am a man under authority. He was looking at the king of the universe who he knew for a fact could heal his paralyzed servant with a word and said in that also word, you're under authority. It blew his mind that the creator of the far off galaxies was standing in front of him, submitting himself 
to the will of another. Pastors are to follow the chief shepherd who's the most submissive person who's ever touched planet earth. And new converts are especially in danger of orchestrating everything around and about them. It's a temptation for us all, but the more seasoned we are, God willing, the more we learn, Christ and Christ alone is the solid nourishment that his people must have. Older converts definitely can take the focus away from Christ as well, but new believers should first be tested for a season. I have so many more notes on that, but we'll go to the list. A pastor's relationship with Christ is primary. The second grouping, and they're not listed in this order, but is a pastor's relationship with himself. I see this in verses two and three. The New American Standard uses the word, if you skim verse two, temperate. The ESV translates that same word, sober-minded. We're also told that he's not only temperate or sober-minded, but there in verse two, he's prudent. The ESV says self-controlled. The CSB says he's sensible. Matthew Henry said, a minister must give as little occasion for blame as can be, lest he bring reproach upon his office. He must be sober, temperate, moderate in all his actions and in the use of all creature comforts. Now, have there been pastors who've used the church for selfish gain? Definitely. Is it happening today? Yes. Is anybody immune from that temptation? No. That's what Paul's getting at in this conglomeration of words in verse 2. Tempered, sober-minded, self-controlled. Verse 3 adds in that relationship with himself, not only is he given to excess, he's temperate and self-controlled, but it's specifically applied to the use, if at all, of alcohol. He's not addicted to wine. The ESV says he's not a drunkard. The NIV says he's not given to drunkenness. Now, does the Bible forbid the use of alcohol? No. Should many, for various good reasons, be teetotalers, absolute abstinence? Yes. Does the Bible forbid drunkenness for all Christians? Yes. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine. That is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Not being a drunkard is a matter for pastoral qualification. The pastor is a man who does not seek to use substances to escape reality. But he lives alert and ready, service to Christ and to his people. In his relationship to himself, he's also, according to verse 3, free from the love of money. This qualification is so important because although the pastorate is not typically a get-rich-quick scheme for most who serve in that capacity, you don't have to have money to be a slave to it. Not a lover of money. Why? Why didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, you cannot serve God in farming or God in sports? or God and whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. He could have used other examples to drive home the same point, but the reason Jesus used you cannot serve God in money is because they're served the same way. You don't give money something by serving it. 
You give yourself to money by serving it. You order your whole life around money. Getting one more dollar is the way you serve money. You don't give money something that money doesn't have by serving it. You give your whole self to it. That's the way God is served. You don't give him something he doesn't have. You order your whole life around him as the one that you worship. Must not be a lover of money. A pastor's first love must be Jesus. So his relationship with Christ in verse 6 His relationship with himself, he's temperate and self-controlled. He's not addicted to wine. He's free from the love of money. And if he has a family, he's the husband of one wife. And if he has children, he's managing them well. This is his relationship with his household. I said, if he's married, verse two says he's the husband of one, one wife. Some in church history have taken that phrase in a variety of ways. Some take it to be a prohibition against polygamy. He can only have one wife, not two or three or more. That seems unlikely based on the historic context of Ephesus and first century situations. Others have taken it to mean that the the pastor must be married. But that's also unlikely because Paul wrote the sentence and Paul wasn't married and Paul was the pastor of the church where Timothy was now serving. That would also disqualify Jesus. Others taken it to mean that he must never be remarried. The husband of one wife, even if his first spouse dies. But that's a hard interpretation because it conflicts with a lot of other passages of scripture that clearly permit remarriage after the death of one's spouse. While some may wonder if Paul's dealing with a divorced man being eligible or ineligible to serve as a pastor, I don't think that's the question that Paul is answering in this passage to argue for or against that. Most likely, and the predominant interpretation, husband of one wife, it's literally one woman man. It's he's faithful to his wife. It's highlighting a character quality of monogamy, of devotion. A man who has joyfully said no to every other woman on the planet because he said yes to one. So practically speaking, A pastor is a man who's more committed to his wife than he is to the office in the church called being a pastor. The church can get other pastors. In fact, they should already have some more of them. But hopefully their wives cannot get another husband. So it's good for you and for me, for our pastors to be more committed to their wives than they are to the role of pastoring. But also verse four and five say, if he's married and has children, he manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Poor PKs in the history of the church have, you know, had a lot to deal with because of the words in that verse. Not because the words are bad, but because the application of the words has been often bad. The parallel passage in Titus says something about them believing. So must a a pastor's kids be converts? Well, managing his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, Raven S. said, the home is the proving ground of Christian character. See, nobody in this room knows me more than the people who live within the walls of my house. And nobody inside those walls is impressed with the pastor. But he, not just me, but any pastor should live If he's married and with children, he should live before them and with them in such a way 
to use the NIV's rendering of this verse, his family respects him. If you want to know how this plays out in the pastor's home, I'll give you a little secret. And it should apply to every Christian household that has a husband and a father. The way this mainly plays out, yes, some order and structure manages his household, implies order and structure. There are parameters. There are guardrails. This is safe for us. We'll live within these frameworks. There are consequences. Yes, it's all of that. But it primarily plays out in a deep, even painful awareness. Nobody's arrived at this list. We're all aspiring to grow into these character qualities. Peter said, let them be yours and increasing in another list of similar qualities. These household qualifications are most present if the man in the house is the chief repenter. Not perfect, but getting better by the grace of God, moving forward and acknowledging his sin when it's committed. So what I would say to any Christian parents, man or woman, and any aspiring or current pastor, if you have children, are they growing in the needed areas of emotional intelligence? You know, I, I come from one of those homes where my dad was MIA. Hadn't seen him since I was 10. He died several years ago. He didn't sit me down and help me process my emotions, which is part of the reason that I'm lacking in so many things to this day. What about relational intelligence? Helping your kids figure out how to exercise relational muscles, which are really awkward as you begin to use them well. What about spiritual intelligence without pressure, room to grow, space to ask questions? It's that type of household management that the Lord loves to bless. So his relationship with his wife is she's a priority over him being a pastor. His relationship with his kids is not forcing them into a mold, but giving them space to grow and exercise their own beautiful, God-ordained life. But fourth and fifth, he has a relationship with the world and with the church. With the world, verse two, he's respectable. This may apply to the church as well, but he's also in verse two, hospitable. People are welcome at his house. He uses his home as a tool for gospel ministry, not as a fortress to hide from the world. In verse three, he's not pugnacious. That's not a common word in our vernacular. So the ESV renders it, he's not violent. The CSB, he's not a bully. He's not looking for fights. He doesn't relish another opportunity to argue. He doesn't just love to debate for debate's sake. Paul even told Timothy, do not wrangle about useless words. Is he looking for a fight? Now, as I said earlier about pastors using the church for monetary gain, that's happening in every generation. It happens in our day. But are there not also many so-called pastors 
who are insufferable because they're constantly looking for somebody else to prove wrong. That's pugnaciousness. That's being a bully. That's looking for an opportunity to be violent. So many Christians are attracted to that because it appears strong. But I remind you that Jesus didn't walk around telling everybody how stupid they were. He spoke the truth unapologetically, unflinchingly, boldly, with fire in his eyes, but with love. Both are necessary for pastors because the Lord's bondservant, according to God, must not be quarrelsome. 2 Timothy 2, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So not these things, not pugnacious, not violent, not a bully. He's respectable, he's hospitable, but instead of being bullish, verse three says he's gentle. He's also peaceable. Or the ESV says not quarrelsome. And verse seven says he has a good reputation with outsiders. So that he'll not fall into disgrace in the snare of the devil. Now that's impossible to manage 100% of the time. A pastor may be very hospitable, not pugnacious, may be possessing a lot of Christ's gentleness. He may be peaceable and not quarrelsome and still not have a good reputation with some outside the church. There will be many who think very ill of faithful pastors. Pastors that are totally qualified to be pastors, according to this passage. But ordinarily, those who know a biblically qualified pastor of one of Christ's churches, even if they're not Christians, should think highly of that man. Even if they don't identify themselves with his Christ. And finally, his relationship with the church. So he has a relationship with Christ, with himself, with his family, with the world, and now with the church. This is verse two. It's the only specific qualification to elders as opposed to deacons. They're all the same. This is the added one for elders. Verse two, skillful in teaching. Now today's sermon may have been an expose in my inability to do that. But skillful in teaching. Doesn't mean he's got to be the most world-class teacher you've ever heard. But this qualification is not applied to deacons because deacons are not called and commanded by God to be the primary teachers of the church. Can they teach and preach? Absolutely. Stephen did. He was a deacon. But this is the core function of the pastor's calling. He must be of the character listed, but he must, he must also do the work of teaching the Bible. Doesn't mean he has to preach regularly. Most elders don't do that. One of the basic things that we would look for in evaluating men as prospective elders of this church is when he opens the Bible, does he do God's people good? Whether that's an interpersonal setting in his living room with one other person who may not even yet be a Christian, or it's a formal setting like standing here or teaching an organized class at the church. Does he do God's people good? Over time, do the sheep that belong to the good shepherd tend to grow up in Christ-likeness more and more under the ministry of the word of God through that man? 
He must be skillful in teaching. Again, not a world-class teacher. You see, this is a dangerous situation in which we live because all of you on your ride home today can click a button and listen to much better sermons than the one you just heard. We're not only not opposed to you listening to them, go for it. Get as much of God's good word taught to you as you can. But the subtle danger is thinking, just ordinary fumble bumble preaching isn't enough. When really what we need, and God knows it, is a local church where people are riveted to Christ, being served by pastors riveted to Christ, who are just walking through his word and being fed by it. And if that's all you have, you will grow in your faith. So the application is this. We don't make anybody a pastor. Jesus just gives them to his church. That's Ephesians 4. But as his church, we're to look around, number two, and recognize who the Lord may be giving us, who is elder material, pastor material. We should recognize that. We should test them. We should work at training them in biblical fidelity and then eventually appoint them to serve us as elders or send them into pastoral ministry to serve as elders elsewhere. Now, this church was planted with a vision of planting more churches. As the first phase of work at our church property is happening literally this week, the building is being demolished. It's almost completely gone, the one that needed to be torn down so we could build another one. We are intentionally thinking of building a building that will not hold more than a certain number of people so that we can, God willing, see pastors raised up among us, sent out with a few of us to start more churches somewhere else. Kingdom of Christ, not empire of Grace Church. And so another application is pray for the Nashes. They desire to be sent by this congregation. We all believe that they're pastor, uh, a pastor family. He's pastor material. He's one of our elders currently. We believe the best use of his vapor of a life on this side of eternity would be to go pastor somewhere. Let's pray that the Lord would open that door. Two final comments and then I close. Do you aspire to be a pastor, brothers? I've known pastors who have had a sense of God's calling from a very young age. Little boys, if you can hear my voice, I wonder if one day God wants you to be a pastor. That would be a very good thing to desire to do. I've known other pastors who left a successful career late into adulthood to serve God's churches. There's also a biblical category for not leaving that job and serving God's church as an elder in a non-vocational capacity. Pray about that sacred task, brothers. Pray about that. And then church to you. Do you see God raising up anybody among us as a prospective elder who's never served us before in that capacity? Ordinarily, God just keeps doing that in his churches. It may be somebody who hasn't been around for so long or somebody who's been around for a long time, but we should have our antenna up and be sensitive to, hmm, 
I wonder if so-and-so is a gift from Christ to serve us as one of our pastors. Well, lastly, some of you have never experienced verse 6. You've never been converted. To you, I say, Jesus' arms are still as wide open to you right now as they were on the day he died on the cross for your sins. And if you'll turn away from your sins and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll get to know what verse 6 is all about. You'll be one of those converted people. You'll be one of those belong to Jesus people. And he would love to save you right now. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would make this church to be served by biblically faithful pastors. And we also ask that you would raise up more of them so that the gospel and glory of Christ can continue to be proclaimed long after we're dead and gone until Jesus returns. Lord, use us, not only for us to enjoy the benefit of being shepherded by biblical pastors, but also to send them out elsewhere where there are none. Lord, help us. Bless us to be senders. Bless Grace Church to be fertile ground for church planting near and far and to send biblically qualified pastors in that effort. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.